Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the beauty of this incredible day, this beautiful fall day, and the privilege that we have to be here with family and friends and people we love who love you. God, I'm just so glad to be here. My soul is just thrilled to be here today and to hear these praises and to share these prayers and now to talk together out of your word. So Lord, together we do pray that in these few moments we spend in your truth that you'll speak directly, profoundly, powerfully, transformingly to us. Help us to be able to trust and obey in a new way, wherever we need to trust you, and then to obey you even this day. I pray that for me and us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as all of you know, and as we've talked about already, Hurricane Ian is, of course, absolutely and should be dominating all of our thoughts across these days. As of this morning, the death toll is up to 54, although it's expected that that will climb significantly as rescue efforts continue. As I'm sure you've seen in the news, a number of the bridges to the outlying islands were themselves destroyed. And so just getting to where people are is a lot of the challenge right now. They're doing massive rescue efforts as we speak. Nearly a million people in Florida are still without power right now. Could be a week before some of them get power again. It's just horrific. President Biden will be in Puerto Rico and in Florida tomorrow to continue to kind of monitor the devastation of all of this as we're all continuing to pray for those that have been in the midst of this. I have a brother who lives in the Tampa area himself, uh, a sister-in-law that lives in Orlando, and lots of friends in the area. So like all of us have, have shared, we've all been praying about this. But you know, on an American level anyway, as bad as this has been, it could have been worse. It actually could have been worse. So back earlier in the week, this was the path of Hurricane Ian which was going to directly hit Tampa Bay. That was the path, as recently as Tuesday, Wednesday, early Wednesday of this week. Now, why would that be a thing? Of all the areas that were in the potential path of the storm, Tampa Bay area is by far the most populated. More than three million people in that area. Making things far worse, just because of the nature of the geography there and the elevations and all of that, it was estimated in 2015 that a direct hurricane storm surge in Tampa Bay would be worse than any other place in the United States. That that would be the most devastating place for a storm. I didn't know that. For a storm surge in the entire country would be Tampa Bay. The devastation could have been unprecedented if that hurricane actually struck Tampa Bay. Why haven't you heard more about that threat? Because it's been more than 100 years since a hurricane struck Tampa Bay. It was in 1921, the last time that the area took a direct hurt, direct hit from a hurricane force storm. So why is that? You might wonder. Why has it been 100 years? Well, here's one of the explanations that's been in the news. The Tocobaga Indians, I think I'm saying that right, back in the day, lived in that area around Tampa Bay. They prayed for blessings for the area. They left behind burial and sacred mounds all around the area of Tampa Bay. And so there's a local legend that those blessings and those mounds are protecting Tampa Bay from disasters. So there you go. There's a head of the local uh, history society who before 2017 said he didn't believe in that. But in 2017, there was, I think it was Irma, there was an earthquake or hurricane that was on a direct line. And then it suddenly, unexplainably weakened to a tropical storm before it hit Tampa Bay. So he says, now I'm a believer. He said, all I can say is, thank God for the Tocobaga Indians. 
is his saying. Well, another resident in the area said, I don't know if I believe in that legend, but I do believe in the power of God. Well, so do I, so do you. But the power of God is problematic at times like this, isn't it? I am so grateful the hurricane didn't strike Tampa Bay directly because my brother was in that path. But where it did strike is devastated as a result, right? It's like if you're praying for the Cowboys to win today, you're praying for the, Red, well, excuse me, the commanders, I'm going to do that the rest of my life, for the commanders to lose, you know? If the farmer's praying for rain while the golfer's praying for sunshine, what does God do? How does that work? And then, of course, we have this huge challenge that God knew about this before it happened. He's all-powerful. He calmed the stormy sea of Galilee. He could have calmed this. He's all-loving, so you'd think he'd want to, and yet he didn't. And so here we are again at one of those places where we just don't understand when these disasters, when these devastations happen. So here's the point I want us to think about today. We need to trust God the most when we understand him the least. So let me explain that for just a second, then we'll apply it and look at it biblically, all right? When you need to trust God most is that place when the disaster strikes. It's when the horrible thing happens. I woke up this morning, didn't need to thank, well, I thank God, yes, but I didn't need to trust God for the weather because the way it is, right? Now, if there was some tropical storm bearing down on us, that'd be different. We trust God the most in those places where we need him the most, but it's in those places where we need him the most that we don't understand why we're in the place where we need him the most, does that make sense? It's when the cancer strikes that we need him the most, but we also don't understand why we have cancer. When my son was diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago, I was at exactly this place, needed to trust God with him. At the same time, I was angry at God that I had to trust God with him. That makes sense. So the logic is that we need to trust God the most when we understand him the least. Where do you need that fact? Don't mean that rhetorically. You're not in Florida, but where is Florida in you? What's the issue for you? Where's the place you need to trust him when you don't understand him today? What's that look like for you? I watched you as we were all here together and said hi to each other, greeted each other. So wonderful to see the fellowship here. And without fail, every conversation I heard, somebody said, how are you? And the other person said, fine. You asked them, they said they were fine. You both lied and they came on into chapel, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. Elderly professor once told me, son, be kind to everybody because everybody's having a hard time, whether we say it or not. Where is this true for you? Let's think about that biblically. We're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter per Sunday, kind of. We'll see how that goes. Looking at things you don't find in the other Gospels. So now we're in Matthew chapter 2 and the Magi coming to see Jesus. Almost a Christmas sermon in October. We're already seeing Christmas trees in the stores, right? So I guess we should have a Christmas sermon in October, I suppose. So in Matthew chapter 2, you know the story, how the wise men, the Magi, see the star in the east. They make their way to Jerusalem. They consult with King Herod, who's understood to be the king of the Jews. He's, we'll say more in a second, but he's the king under Roman authority. And they're saying, hey, we have heard about this king of the Jews, and we came to worship him. And the star appears again, and they go down, uh, and they meet the child. In Bethlehem, they meet the child and the mother, and they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know that story. And then it says in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Well, now that makes no sense at all. 
makes no sense if I'm one of these guys. Why wouldn't go back to Herod? Herod asked me to do that. Herod said, when you find the child, come and report to me so that I might go and worship him as well. They don't know what we know. They don't know that Herod's actually going to try to kill the child. To their knowledge, Herod's a good guy. He's given them directions on how to find the child. Why wouldn't they do what the king asks them to do? Why wouldn't they stay in good standing with the king of this country? Why wouldn't they do that? They don't understand that. They don't understand that by not going back to Herod, they're giving Jesus' family time to get Jesus out before Herod finds him. They don't know what we know. They also don't know that if they did go back to Herod, there's a good chance Herod would have killed him. If he tried to kill Jesus, if he killed 200 babies in the vicinity in order to kill Jesus, why wouldn't he kill these three or however many wise men who know about Jesus? Why wouldn't he do that? They don't know any of that. All they know is that they're warned in a dream to go home another route, and they do. And aren't we grateful? And if they had a way to know what we know, they would be grateful. Then the story continues. When they departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, this is really bad news. You're an impoverished carpenter from a town so small it's not mentioned once in the Old Testament. You're down here in Bethlehem in the area of Jerusalem, and King Herod is after you. This is what King Herod looked like. That's a contemporary bust from his time. We call him Herod the Great. He was anything but great as a person. Had a lot of his family murdered because he thought they were on some level threats to his throne. A horrific person, but a great builder. That's why he's called Herod the Great. He had two capitals. Had a religious capital in Jerusalem, a secular capital in Caesarea by the sea, or Caesarea Maritima. When I take people to Israel, that's always the first place we go. So here is the secular pagan temple he had built to the worship of Zeus in front of the largest harbor on the Mediterranean that he created out of thin air. It was just a beach before Herod made it into a harbor for 300 boats. Down the seashore from it, you can see it off in the distance there and see the harbor there. Closer, see that hippodrome there? See to 15,000 people. See that theater, to that, that amphitheater? We always go there. That's where we have our first session when we take people to Israel. The remains of it. Seated 5,000 people. To the left of it, jutting out on the water there, is Herod's palace. His personal, that's where he lived when he wasn't in Jerusalem. Now in the middle of it, see that open area? That's an Olympic-sized fresh water swimming pool built on the saltwater Mediterranean using an aqueduct that stretched six miles to the foothills of the Mount Carmel Mountains to bring fresh water into Caesarea and use that fresh water to create a freshwater Olympic swimming pool just because he could. That's King Herod, the so-called great. That's who they're up against. Now in Jerusalem, because that's the religious capital of Israel, Herod also had built what's known as Herod's temple, two and a half times taller than the Dome of the Rock today. The wall you see right in front of you, not the wall of the temple, but the compound, that's called the Temple Mount. It's the size of 20 football fields, the Temple Mount. It's still there today. And that wall that's right in front of you is called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, the part of it that's left. About a fifth of it is left today. And that's where the Jews go to pray. That's what you see on TV. We always go there when we take people to Israel. Down toward the bottom of it, it's underground today. There's one stone 
of all those stones there that weighs more than a 747. One stone. We don't know how they got it there. That's Herod the Great. That's what Herod did. And then because he knew everybody hated him so much, he created a place to be buried called the Herodian. That looks to you and me like a mountain. He created that out of flat ground. And halfway down, put a place for his tomb called the Herodian. That's who they're up against. So now Joseph gets the word. Herod's going to try to kill the baby. What do we do? Well, here's what I would have done. I would have fled back north. That's 90 miles to the north, back up to Nazareth, and then kept going. It's not very much further till I'm completely out of Herod's jurisdiction. Up to the north, I have family. Up there, I have friends. Mary's family, by tradition, is from Sepphoris, which is the capital of the Galilee up in the north. And I've got infrastructure. I've got people I know. I've got places I can go hide up there. I'm a long ways away from Herod. I can get back up there. We got down. We can get back up there, get out of Herod. That's what I would do if I was Joseph. Instead, Joseph is told, take the child and go to Egypt. Well, now this is what they did. All right, that's the flight to Egypt. They had to go at least 200 miles, minimum, to get to some place they could live, probably three to 400 miles. That's at least twice as far as Joseph would have to go to go back to what he knows, to the family he's got up there, to the parts of Israel he's familiar with, and then on out, out of Herod's jurisdiction, at least twice that far, to Egypt, pagan Egypt. Remember the Jewish experience in Egypt. Remember being enslaved in Egypt. Nonetheless, the Lord tells him to go to Egypt. A lot of skeptics said, well, how could he possibly afford to get there? Remember the wise men? The gold, frankincense, and myrrh financed the journey and the ability to get to Egypt and to live there until Herod dies. Now, none of this is making sense to me if I'm Joseph. So glad I'm not Joseph. And so grateful that you can trust God when you don't understand him. So the story continues. He's told to go to Egypt, remain there till I tell you Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph rose, took the child, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt. Talk about a faithful follower. You know, Joseph never speaks a recorded word in Scripture. Called the silent man of Christmas. But without Joseph, how would history be different, right? So he's obedient. He trusts what he doesn't understand. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child as mother, go to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life are dead. So he rose again, took the child, took his mother, went to the land of Israel. Herod Archelaus, ruling in Judea in place of his father, afraid to go there, warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So that's what I would have done to start with. So grateful for God's providence over my finitude, and here's why. Now he's up to the north. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so small as not mentioned once in the Old Testament, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All of that is an illustration of the fact that we need to trust God the most when we understand him the least. Now you see this theme all through Scripture, don't you? Think about Abraham. I love this. In, in Hebrews eleven eight, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing. I love that phrase. He went out not knowing the place where he was to go. This is St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai, the place where, by tradition, Moses met God at the burning bush. 
Moses is fleeing from the Egyptians, and God sends him back to the Egyptians, back to Pharaoh, to let his people go. And it all starts right there in the middle of the desert. There's the flooded Jordan River. It was much wider in Joshua's day, but nonetheless, the Lord tells Joshua to lead his people across the flooded Jordan River into the promised land, and when they set foot in the water, God will stop the flood. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Trust God when you don't understand him. That's the Valley of Elah, where David slew Goliath with a slingshot. Trust God when you don't understand him. Daniel in the lion's den. Somebody took an iPhone photo, and that's how we got that picture of it. Northern Sea of Galilee, Jesus could have called rabbis, priests, Sanhedrin, calls fishermen living on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to change the world. Trust God when you don't understand him. That's the road to Damascus. That's where Tall of Tarsus was on his way to persecute Christians when he met Christ. And the world was never again the same. That's the cave in Patmos where John met Jesus and received the revelation. That didn't look like that. That's what 20 centuries of worship in that cave have done in an orthodox tradition to make that a spot of worship. I think I've told the story. One of my times taking a group to Patmos, we were asked to wait outside. It was a Sunday morning, and then we watched this group coming out of the cave with folding chairs in their arms. That was John's church. When John was exiled to Patmos, he led his fellow prisoners to Christ. He led his jailers to Christ. They started a church in that cave. Twenty centuries later, they're still worshiping in that cave. Trust God when you don't understand him. My story is the same. You have the same story. God called Janet and me to First Baptist Midland in 1988. I was 30 years old. I'd pastored a church of 100 on a really good day before that. Made no sense to us, but it somehow made sense to God. Wonderful experience in Midland. Loved the people, loved the culture. We were having a terrific experience. And then God calls us to Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church in Atlanta. No idea I would ever live in Atlanta. Loved Atlanta. Had a wonderful experience there. Church half the size uh, First Baptist Midland, but God clearly calling us there. And then in 1998, he called us to Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas. Again, that made no sense to us. Loved Atlanta, loved what God was doing there, so many wonderful things God was doing there. God blessed us. We had such an incredible experience at Park City's. That's part of the building over here. Is, I guess the rest of the building couldn't get it all in one picture. It's a big church in Dallas. And then in 2009, God led us to start what we call Denison Ministries, and none of that ever made any sense. Janet has figured something out. Anytime something makes no sense to me, it must be the call of God, you know, because that's just been the pattern. I bet you have a story like that as well. So what can we learn from this? Let's apply this very briefly. Trust God the most when you understand him the least. Make a few observations and we'll be done. First, God wants you to try to understand him. We're not advocating for intellectual suicide here. You are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isaiah 118, the Lord says, come let us reason together. The Hebrew says, come let us argue it out. You're supposed to do diligence. You're supposed to use your mind. You're supposed to think along with God. But understand that your mind is finite and fallen. Understand that sin blocks the voice of the Spirit. And if there's unconfessed sin in my life, my mind is not going to be able to hear the voice of God. It's just not. That's why every day we've got to confess sin. Every day, ask the Lord, bring to your mind anything you need to confess and confess what comes to your thoughts. 
and keep the mind at a place where it can receive from the Holy Spirit. I used to drive a 66 Mustang until eventually I decided to stay married. It was a binary choice, and I made the right choice. Well, my 66 Mustang, as all the Mustangs in the old cars of the day did, had these batteries with the battery posts, and, and the clamps went on those. And I don't know how they got corrupted, but they did. Those clamps on those posts, as soon as you clean them off, they started getting corrupted. About every month, you had to clean the stupid things off. Had this brush you would use to clean out the clamp and this thing you'd put on the post. Or you could just pour Coca-Cola on it. That would get rid of the corrosion. Probably did other really bad stuff, too, but at least that would fix that. Well, the power was still in the battery, but if there was corrosion on the clamp, the power couldn't get to the starter to start the car. Well, that's what sin does. It corrodes the mind so that we can't hear as the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. So love God with all your mind, but also make certain that your sins are confessed, that the Holy Spirit can speak to your mind. And then understand your mind sometimes just can't understand God's mind. If you could understand God, he wouldn't be God or you would be. Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than yours, his thoughts, higher than your thoughts, right? It's not that he's holding out on you. I was talking to a very dear friend last week whose husband passed away a couple of weeks ago of cancer at the age of 34, leaving behind a two-year-old son. And Melissa was back at her office for the first time since the funeral. One of the most horrible things I've seen in ministry. And her faith, her courage, preached the gospel at her husband's funeral at his request. Melissa Jarks. Yeah. Used to be Melissa Kibbe, for those of us that know her from Dallas. Saw her back at the office for the first time. Came back to work a week later, and we were talking. She said, you know, one of the things that's so hard is she said, I just don't understand. I've prayed so hard. We've all prayed so hard. I just don't understand. And I said, I don't either. Trust me, I don't either. I don't understand my father's death at 55. I don't understand my son's cancer years ago. I sure don't understand this. But I do believe this. It's not that God's holding out on us. It's not that God could explain that if he only would. I'm convinced there's a lot about life we don't understand simply because we can't. As brilliant as my six-year-old is at playing video games, I can't explain calculus to him, even if I could. I'm not holding out. He's just unable. My mind is unable to comprehend the mind of God. Do my best. Try hard. Do diligence. Use your mind as you can. Confess sin so it doesn't block that way, but understand there are mysteries in life that we will understand one day, and that's the fourth point. What we don't understand now, we will one day. I promise you that. I love this passage. Now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Well-known Christian writer named Mike Iaconelli lost his eight-year-old son to progeria, which is advanced aging. His eight-year-old son died of old age. He was asked sometime later how he was doing. He said, we're doing this day by day, knowing that one day we will be able, we will be able to ask God some very hard questions. And then last, we prove God is Lord if we trust him when we don't understand him. That's when we prove he's Lord. He can be your father, and you can disobey. Not that I ever did that, not that my kids ever did that, right? 
He can be your counselor and you don't have to take his advice. He can even be your boss and you can quit. If he's your Lord, you obey him when you don't understand it. And it's those decisions, those places that especially position us to experience God's best. So Abraham went out not knowing. Where are you going out not knowing today? Where is God asking you to trust him when you don't understand him? R.C. Sproul said the issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. Do you really believe he is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful? Do you? Do you believe the God you believe in? And then Augustine said, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. So one last time, trust God the most when you understand the least. Or as a wise mentor once told me, stay faithful to the last word you heard from God and open to the next. I found that to be wise advice. So let's pray. Name that place where you need to go out not knowing. Where there's something you just don't understand. And decide right now to trust it to God. Understand the less you understand, the more you need to trust. And choose to make that commitment to your Father right now. Father God, I thank you that Abraham went out not knowing. I thank you that Moses followed your call back to Pharaoh. I'm so grateful that Joseph went to Egypt. And so very grateful for the people that knocked on my door and invited me to Jesus. Now I'm trusting you, Lord, in those hard places to trust you. In those places where you're not answering prayer the way I'm praying it. In those places in my past that don't make sense. Those fears I have for the future, the pain in the present. I'm going to trust you anyway today. And believe that you always give the best to those that leave the choice with you. Thank you for the privilege of believing in a God who believes in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. Was